Wait a minute. In the original sketch, the ear is broken, but the ear of the returned idol is whole. The idol in the museum's a fake. Welcome back to Radio Tintin, and we have an episode full of firsts today. We have Auger's first fictional nation. We have the first adventure set in South America, and perhaps most importantly, we have Tintin's first experience with public drunkenness. This is Radio Tintin, The Broken Ear. A wooden idol carved by the Arumbaya tribe of South America is stolen from the Brussels Museum of Ethnography, only to be returned the following day. Tintin realises that the replacement is a fake, and sets out to find out what has happened to the original, which has no real value except to collectors. On the trail as well are two mysterious Hispanic men named Ramon and Alonso, with whom Tintin clashes repeatedly. Tintin finds himself in the South American nation of San Theodoras, where, through a well-timed revolution and a fair amount of alcohol, he escapes a firing squad and is made aide-de-camp to the volatile General Alcazar. He opposes a campaign propagated by petroleum and weapons corporations that would see San Theodoras go to war with neighbouring Nuevo Rico over the oil-rich Gran Chapo region, a decision that makes him powerful enemies and sees him framed as a traitor. He escapes the firing squad again, but war does still break out between the nations. In the dense jungles of Nuevo Rico, Tintin discovers the Arambayan people and the missing British explorer Ridgewell, who explains that a large diamond was hidden within the statue, explaining its importance to the relentless Ramon and Alonso. As the war between San Theodoras and Nuevo Rico ends when Gran Chapo is discovered to have no oil, Tintin discovers that hundreds of replica idols have been reproduced for commercial gain, and that the original was purchased by Mr. Goldbar, a wealthy American. Now Returning to the United States by ship with it. Managing to catch up to the boat, Tintin struggles aboard with Ramon and Alonso. His struggle for the possession of the fetish results in its smashing on the floor, upon which the diamond hidden within rolls overboard into the sea. Ramon and Alonso try to kill Tintin in their anger, and the three of them accidentally fall overboard as well. Tintin is rescued, but Ramon and Alonso drown. Mr. Goldbar allows Tintin to return the stolen fetish to the museum, where it is repaired and put back on display, albeit now in a comically damaged fashion. The Broken Ear was serialised in La Petite Vetium between December 5th, 1935 and February 25th, 1937, making it the sixth Tintin adventure Urge crafted as part of a golden period of uninterrupted creative output that would continue until the Second World War. Le Petit Vetiem had lost the editorial ship of Father Norbert Velez, who was Urge's professional and personal mentor and was a hugely instrumental figure in the creation of Tintin. But this had not stopped the public thirst for more adventures from the boy reporter, and by 1936, thanks to the uniquely insular nature of the European Catholic press, Urge's hero would have a dedicated readership, not only in his native Belgium, but in France, Switzerland, and Portugal as well. Tintin may have not been the international hero he is today just yet, but tell that to the thousands of children who packed into the Cirque Royale in Brussels to see Tintin, or at least a very convincing lookalike, announce his return from China following the conclusion of Le Petit Vetiem's Tintin in the Orient storyline. This readership would have been even wider, according to Publishing House Casterman, if Urge started to present Tintin's new adventures in colour and update his previous albums. 
But Auger was hesitant. He believed his black and white style set his stories apart from the rest of the garishly coloured fare in the children's magazine racks. Besides, colouring these stories would have required time that he simply did not have, working as he did without interruption seven days a week to ensure Tintin's adventure continued, while also still providing endless graphic design and advertising work on commission. Now he was assisted in his work, not least by his wife Jermaine and assistant Paul Jermin, but he was a long way away from the streamlined collaborative process he would achieve when he established Studio Urge after the Second World War. The adventures of Tintin, as well as those of Quick and Flupke, the gag-reliant Brusselier street urchins that appeared alongside the boy reporter in Le Petit Vetiem, were still spearheaded primarily by one person. To compound this workload, Hergé was visited in 1935 by the editors of magazine Corvaillon, who serialised Tintin's adventures in France, and they requested that he establish a new comic series. One that embodied the same sense of adventure as Tintin, but setting a better example by having a traditional family at the forefront of the adventures. The resulting series, The Adventures of Joe, Zet, and Jocko, starring a young brother and sister and naturally their pet chimpanzee, is worthy of a closer analysis, but it would prove to be no rival to Tintin. Urge felt that the family dynamic was too restricting. Whereas Tintin was able to set off on an adventure at will, Joe and Zet's parents would inevitably have to be involved somehow in the plot, which restricted the kind of stories he could explore. And the series was terminated in 1939 without having truly found an audience. Furthermore, colouring his adventures would also have potentially meant less time providing the graphic and cultural accuracy he was beginning to prioritise after his collaboration with Chang Chon Jen on Tintin in the Orient, which later became Tintin and the Blue Lotus. It was around this time that Hergé began to cultivate his now legendary archive of newspaper articles, magazine clippings, and postcards, which would provide inspiration for his stories and graphic references for the elements found within. This archive, largely preserved and still intact, provides a fascinating insight into what sparked Hergé's imagination. One item, a photograph of a wooden pre-Columbian statuette from the Chimu people of northern Peru, did just this, and the idol would be pretty much copied into Le Petit Vetiem, becoming the now iconic fetish of the Arambaya, the stolen object that would send Tintin to South America. South America was the next logical destination for Urge to explore through Tintin, and would allow him to re-examine themes that were close to his Boy Scout heart, such as Anglo-American capitalist exploitation and the peoples of the First Nations of the world. But the Broken Ear also has a strong, almost Hitchcockian element of mystery to it as well. The idol itself acts as what Hitchcock would call a MacGuffin, an object that serves no purpose within the plot except to be obtained and propel the story forwards. And the idea of an innocuous statue hiding a treasure of immense wealth was utilised in the Dashiell Hammett story, The Maltese Falcon, which had already been adapted to film in 1931 and may have inspired Urge. Actually, The Broken Ear is definitely the kind of story that could easily feature detectives Thompson and Thompson, hot on the trail like they were in their previous two stories. But surprisingly, they only have a brief appearance here, investigating the theft at the beginning of the album. These mystery elements in The Broken Ear would build upon Urge's previous work in Cigars of the Pharaoh and the Blue Lotus, and would be perfected in later stories such as The Black Island, The Calculus Affair, and The Castafura Emerald. Their inclusion, however, does mean that the political messaging that was central to The Blue Lotus must inevitably take a back seat. However, it's still there. 
You see, another central inspiration for the Broken Ear was the Grand Chaco War, or Chaco War, which Hergé learned about in contemporary current affairs magazines. The conflict was for control of the Gran Chaco region of South America, which was believed to be oil-rich, and it's generally believed that the war was spurred on by rival oil companies jockeying for exclusive drilling rights in the region, with the Dutch-British Shell Company supporting Paraguay and American Standard Oil backing Bolivia. The war, seldom remembered in the West today, was waged from 1932 to 1935 and cost over 100,000 lives. It remained the bloodiest interstate military conflict fought in South America during the 20th century and allowed Hergé another chance to explore the same ruthless capitalist exploitation that had seen the Native Americans marched off their land at gunpoint in Tintin and America. He also takes aim, pun very much intended, at the international arms trade, depicting the jet-setting arms dealer Basil Bazarov matter-of-factly travelling between San Theodorus and neighbouring Nuevo Rico to sell the same weapons to both governments of the warring nations. Bazarov is an undisguised satire of Sir Basil Zarahoff, the Greek industrialist and weapons manufacturer whose political connections and cunning business acumen made him a possible inspiration for Ian Fleming's arch-bond villain Ernst Stavro Blofeld. I am Ernst Stavro Blofeld. What on earth are you doing in a variety show? Despite these very tangible connections to very serious issues in the world, the resulting critique is a pithy one at best, and Hergé never seems to give the impression he is quite as bothered by the actions of these oil companies and arms dealers as he was by the actions of, say, the imperial Japanese government or the corrupt international settlement in China, as he displayed in the Blue Lotus. The fictional nation of San Theodorus is, in sharp contrast to Hergé's vividly accurate China, a fairly bland approximation of all the stereotypical Banana Republic elements of popular imagination. A land of endless revolution led by military men of bloated self-importance. Now, much of this is, of course, attributed to the fact that there was no South American Chang who could advise the artist this time. The end result is that while the villains are undoubtedly the top-hatted Western capitalists, the South American people, as embodied primarily by the easily duped and ill-tempered General Alcazar, are seldom worthy of any true sympathy, and the plight of the hundred thousand men who died in the real conflict is never explored. Similarly, the Arambayas serve to provide a little bit of native exoticism for the readers back home in Europe, but little else. And the reader isn't really left with the same sympathy they are for the indigenous peoples of Tintin and America, though the historical exploitation and violence suffered by the native peoples of South America is undeniably comparable, if perhaps less well documented, when Hergé was writing. Hergé is also guilty of retreading old ground when it comes to his depiction of non-European customs. The Arambayan witch doctor is jealous of the influence held by the British Ridgewell and conspires to see him killed in a dynamic last scene in Tintin in the Congo. Scenes in which Snowy is very nearly sacrificed, or in which ventriloquism is used to give the impression that a religious totem is speaking, are almost identical to those in Cigars of the Pharaohs. Chang was responsible for opening up Hergé's mind to the world, and there's surely no more moralistic extolling of the virtues of colonialism, but it seems that not all Europeans in the adventures of Tintin are yet worthy of equal representation. But to his credit, Hergé did maintain numerous elements on South American tribes in his archive, and he did take the time to consult academic sources, ensuring that there is at least a veneer of accuracy in his representations.
Unfortunately, this accuracy doesn't extend to the backgrounds of some of these scenes. Artistically, the scenes set in the Nouveau Record jungles contain some of the laziest backgrounds produced in the coloured editions of the Tintin Alps. By page 52, Hergé has resorted to backgrounds consisting of a single shade of green, a cardinal sin for an artist with a reputation for perfectionism and one that would never again be repeated. This shortcoming can be attributed in the original black and white album as Hergé's tight deadlines briefly catching up to him and later being the first Tintin adventure to undergo the colorization process when Hergé finally agreed to Casterman's demands in 1943. Again, however, this was before he had found his ideal creative setup and it seems impossible that the man who would go on to redraw many elements of the Black Island almost 30 years after first publication to better suit contemporary audiences would permit such an artistic transgression later on in his career. Linguistically, however, The Broken Ear has a lot to offer, and even in the English translation, much of Hergé's love of wordplay and puns shine through. The nation of Nouveau Rico is a play on the term Nouveau Riche, or newly rich, perhaps a reference to the fictional country's recently acquired oil wealth. While its capital city of San Facion is based on the term son façon, meaning without manners or without pretension. Furthermore, the real-life Grand Chaco becomes Grand Chapeau, which sounds suspiciously like Big Hat in French. Originally, the arms dealer Bazarov represented the fictional Viking Arms Company, a transparent reference to Zaharov's real-life association with the arms manufacturer Vickers. Though this was later changed to Corrupt Arms, amalgamating the word corrupt with the famous German weapons dynasty Krupp. Additionally, the representative from General American Oil is renamed from Chiclet, a well-known brand of American chewing gum, to Trickler, which could be referenced to both his political trickery and the trickle of oil that he loved so much. In the French translations, the Arambayans speak a version of the Brussels-based Morolion dialogue, which would be a popular base language upon which Hergé would base many of his fictional languages in years to come. While written to appear like a foreign language, pronounced phonetically, it would be decipherable to those who knew. True to this spirit, the English translations have the Arambayas speaking a variant of the East London Cockney dialogue. Harry Thompson calls these passages a little tiresome, but that's a bit too harsh. Many readers will enjoy deciphering these panels, and it does does go some way to compensate for the glaring lack of detail in the backgrounds. The Broken Ear provides some interesting firsts among the series. Rather than beginning with Tintin already embarking for a far-off land, the first quarter of the story takes place in his native Brussels, and the reader is given their first insight into Tintin's comfortable flat, resplendent with some Chinese artwork, a nice nod to his previous adventure. It's also rare to see the boy reporter not merely drinking alcohol, but positively tanked, sharing a bottle of schnapps with the colonel who delays his execution, the resulting drunken rambling enough to fortuitously grant him a colonel's commission from General Alcazar. However, as Michael Farr sympathetically points out, Tintin had narrowly cheated death twice by firing squad at this stage, and he faced the chance of being unlucky the third time, so perhaps he can be forgiven for indulging just this once, in stark contrast to his stringent teetotaling later on in the series. Readers familiar with the tone of the series will also be disturbed to see the villains Ramon and Alonso carried off by small horned devils carrying pitchforks after drowning in the ocean. This panel is preceded by Tintin telling a ship steward the gangsters went, quote, straight down, ostensibly a reference to the bottom of the ocean, but implicitly suggesting a destination even further below. 
Indeed, while the prospect of divine judgment and eternal damnation would be natural beliefs for Hergé and his Catholic readership, it's really strange to see them actually depicted in a Tintin album. Truthfully, while they are ruthless murderers within the story, the bumbling and comedic goons are hardly the most diabolical villains to be presented in the series so far, and one would think if the abominable Mitsuharatu of the Blue Lotus can avoid hell, well, they probably deserve a reprieve as well. Thompson cites the numerous deaths presented in the Broken Ear as motivation for Corvayon to request their more family-friendly comic strip, but this is possibly incorrect, as the story would not have finished syndication when Urge began work on Joe, Seth and Jocko. However, when Corvayon serialised the story in France, they requested the devil panel be replaced with one in which Tintin instead vouches the souls of the bandits for God. Hergé, not typically receptive to creative direction, relented reluctantly. The original, however, remains in all album versions today, and is one of the very few depictions of the death of a villain in the series. San Theodorus, along with its neighbouring Nuvorico, would be the first of many fictional nations created by Urshe as a means to explore the general socio-politics of a region without burdening himself with the stringent cultural accuracy he had committed to after depicting China in the Blue Lotus. The Broken Ear is perhaps most significant for its introduction of General Alcazar, who, despite wrongly believing Tintin to be a traitor upon their last meeting, would become a friend in later appearances, turning up in exile from San Theodorus in both Prisoners of the Sun and the Red Sea Sharks, having been deposed in his ongoing leadership battle with General Tapioca. Finally, the story would have something of a direct sequel in 1976's Tintin the Piqueros, Urge's last completed Tintin adventure, which featured the first appearance of the often named Tapioca, as well as General Alcazar, Professor Ridgewell, the Arambayas, and even the largely forgettable bandit Pablo in a return I don't think anybody really asked for, but was still a nice touch. As a side note, nothing really exemplifies just how long Urge's work lasted, quite like the change in General Alcazar's attire appearing in a bright blue cavalry officer's uniform in 1937's The Broken Ear, complete with a sabre and epular for his shoulders, before opting instead for drab khaki combat fatigues and assault rifle for 1976's Tintin and the Piqueros. For whatever reason, Urge clearly had some sort of affinity for the South American continent, having sent his reporter, who seldom revisited foreign nations, back on multiple occasions, and the cigar-chomping, unshaven, bad-tempered but Good-hearted, General Alcazar has become a popular supporting character in the Tintin universe. General Alcazar! Hop in, amigo! After completing syndication in 1937, The Broken Ear was published in album format by Casterman the same year, before becoming, as mentioned, the first adventure to undergo colorization in 1943. Though this revision did not involve a complete redrawing like Urge's stories pre-The Blue Lotus did. However, some scenes were cut to fit Casterman's 62-page album format, including a scene in which Tintin listens to a radio report about the contemporary Italian invasion of Abyssinia, and a scene in which Tintin has a nightmare he is being attacked in his sleep by an Arambayan, a motif Urge would recycle for his next South American adventure, The Seven Crystal Balls. The Broken Ear was adapted as the second story in Bellvision's Urge's Adventures of Tintin animated series in 1959, though unfortunately only the first episode seems to be publicly available today and it doesn't feature any voice work. It was adapted again as part of the early 90s French-Canadian animated series, though this version forgoes several controversial elements of the story, including Tintin's drunken episode, the death of Ramon and Alonso, and the entirety of the oil war subplot. Perhaps if your story's politics can be jettisoned without affecting it substantively, your story's politics were never that strong. 
Though of less importance, this adaption also changes the method of Tintin's escape from Ramon and Alonso's interrogation shack. From a random lightning strike, which in an instance of dumb luck much more reminiscent of Tintin in the Land of the Soviets, manages in the original album to somehow transport him outside, to much more simply jumping out the window. In a delicious case of life imitating art, the original Chimu Idol, which provided Urge with the inspiration for the Arambayan fetish of the broken ear, was put on display in the Brussels Palace of Fine Arts in 1979 as part of an exhibition showcasing the many genuine artifacts featured in the series to celebrate 50 years of Tintin. True to the story, the idol was stolen from its display with a letter, similar to that featured in the album, and similarly just signed X, written to Le Soir newspaper, telling Urge it would be returned if he waited at the scene of the crime at a given time with a copy of the broken ear under his arm. The bemused Urge agreed to the terms, but the thief never showed and was never caught. But the ultimate irony? Just like Ramon and Alonso in the story, the thief had only stolen a replica of the original that had been placed in the display for just such an occasion. Well, I took to Instagram on at tintin.podcast to ask some of my followers what they thought about the broken ear and see if we can get a sort of consensus, a Tintin fan consensus. Now, I was really surprised by some of the comments. I'd like to go through them now. Uh, Jean-Francois Lahomme says, beautiful artwork. I agree in parts. I think the Brussels scenes at the start are particularly good, particularly vibrant. Sergio Le Conforti says he likes it. Tintin Lignaclair says, one of my favorites. It's still an old style that I love so much. Interesting story and full of adventures. I know what you mean by the old style. It's sort of difficult to track Urge's artistic progression through the albums because, of course, he did the first nine in black and white, uh, but he changed his style over those nine. And then after those black and white ones, he started doing them in color and recoloring old ones, but he didn't recolor them old ones in order. So with the broken ear, we have an example of it being the first to be recolored, but it wasn't completely redrawn as, say, Tintin the Congo or Tintin America was. So for that reason, it's, it's in color, but it's sort of not quite the polished, finished Tintin that we know, especially the Tintin model. You can, if you have a keen eye for these things, it's still recognizably Tintin, but you can tell the differences in the artistic style and the way Tintin is drawn. Pentagy or Pentagy says, I liked it. Sure is one of my faves, to be honest. I like the story in general, the idea itself. Pacing was really good in there. Characters' interactions most of the time felt natural and fitted the whole situation. There were many small aspects of the story, which I simply enjoyed. I get back to reading this one time to time because of how enjoyable it is. Sure, it has weird parts, but overall, I'd say it's a really great adventure worth checking out. So this is obviously one that Pentagy comes back to again and again. We all have those. If we're Tintin fans, there's one that we can always just sort of reread over and over again. And there are some sort of weird aspects in it, but I don't think it's it's, it's too much to detract from it. Sarah Felton 10 says, I can't remember the plot, so maybe it's forgettable. Sorry, Hergé. That's all right. There are quite a few Tintin stories we can't possibly, unless you're doing a podcast about it, <laughs> remember all of them. M. Finnan, M. Finan. I'm sorry. I hope one of those mispronunciations was correct, says it's memorable for the introduction of Alcazar and the Aaron Byers and one of the first comics to introduce some of the beautiful jungle scenery by Urge that reappears again and again in other albums. Alonso and Ramon are entertaining and memorable side characters, but I think compared to the Blue Lotus and Black Island that come before and after, it's maybe a little outshone by such iconic stories framing it in the canon. Yeah, so in regards to the jungle scenes, I 
think it gets a lot better from here. You know, I made my thoughts on the jungle backgrounds in some of the, the scenes in this very clear. I think they're very, very lazily done. And it wouldn't happen again. And if you look at um, Urge either redrawing old jungle scenes, such as in Cigars of the Pharaohs, or doing new jungle scenes in Tintin the Pequeros many years later, vastly superior to what we see in The Broken Ear. I agree about Alonso and Ramon being memorable characters. Adding a bit of humour to these, these, these henchmen, which I sort of said in the earlier stories was really lacking. The sort of bad guys with no personality sort of plagued the uh, maybe the the first three Tintin stories. Um, and I know what you mean by its place in the canon. So in my opinion, it's one of the few books wedged between uh, The Blue Lotus, which is regarded as Urge's first masterpiece, and I think the next really important part in the series, which is uh, the introduction of Captain Haddock in Crab with the Golden Claws. And Broken Ear is one of the three stories that sort of fall between those. And I think because of that, it might get overlooked a bit, which may be why uh, Sarah Felton 10 says she couldn't remember it. Leaf does cosplay says, in terms of its placement in the series, it's kind of a transitional book in my opinion. Now, here we go. It has a lot of the older books, i.e. Soviets and Congo structures of vignettes to some extent, but it's connected in a narrative like in Blue Lotus. A couple of other comments mentioned that it's placed between two much stronger books, and I feel like that's apt. The biggest thing that struck me from the Broken Ear is the ending image of Ramon and Alonso getting dragged off to hell, something that never really shows up in Urge's work again. No, it doesn't, and <laughs> that that scene never does show up in any other books. But um, even, even you know, as I mentioned in the review, it was sort of kind of shocking at the time. You know, it's all right to go with some of these older stories. Oh, that's just what it was like at the time. But I don't think it was re- well received by a lot of <laughs> a lot of the the um magazines that were syndicating the story so it's not like you can just go it was a different time even at the time it was kind of weird and that's probably one of those um weird parts that uh pentagy was was talking about there really weird scene of <laughs> bad guys being dragged to hell amy montanari says i like the broken ear it's one of my favorite stories from tintin although it left some questions i really enjoyed it also alonzo and ramon became my favorite villains for some reason so much so that i'm even a little sorry they end up drowning even if they were the bad guys that's why i like the 1991-92 adaptions version more. I think if the original had just arrested them, there was a better chance of bringing them back, and a good option, in my humble opinion, would have been in Tintin and the Piqueros, even in a cameo. Yeah, so <laughs> another person sort of <laughs> getting struck by the, uh, the very uncharacteristic death and subsequent dragging to hell of uh, of the main villains. You know, it's not just that villains didn't get dragged to hell in the in the comics. They didn't often die in the comics. It was sort of increasingly rare that the villains would, would die somehow. In that regard, the the decision, as you mentioned, of, of the animated series to forgo that is, uh, is a lot more keeping with the tone the series and also because i don't know in 1991 i think probably having villains drown and then drag to hell is probably not gonna fly that well and yeah absolutely bring him back in tinted Bacaros. you know we'll talk about Tinted the Piqueros more when I get up to it, although at this rate, it's going to be many years before I get to Tinted the Piqueros. That's uh, really really a direct sequel to, to The Broken Ear. It's set in the same country, and you get so many returns from um, previous characters. Even Pablo. Remember Pablo? Of course you don't. He's got a tiny, tiny scene in The Broken Ear, but hey, Hergé brings him back in uh, 1976. He brings him back some 40 years later, so um, yeah, I think it would have been great to have Alonso and Ramon back. They are funny characters. GT Avaledo, I hope I'm mispronouncing that correctly, says, among my favorites, but I understand that it is a bit of a letdown after the Blue Lotus. Yes, 
numerous reasons why it doesn't seem to match the heights of the Blue Lotus. It might be the emotional resonance just isn't there. There's no sort of um, personal friendship like there is between Tintin and Chang in the Blue Lotus. And there's not sort of this um, really humanitarian message about tolerance that we get in the Blue Lotus either. So in that way, it's a bit of a step down. But um, we've all got our favourites that we like for one reason or another. And for similar reasons, Fede, Fede, Federico, I should say, he comments, the first Tintin book I read, I was nine years old. Not my favorite, but surely very special. Yeah, and you're always going to come back to that first one, you remember. Even if, you know, looking back, it's it's maybe not one of the best. As for my own thoughts, I was never that excited to revisit Broken Ear. It was maybe one of the more forgettable ones in my mind. It was never one I reread a lot as, as a kid. And I think part of that is because I was remembering the 90s television adaption, which gets rid of the entirety of the Grand Chapo War and the arms deal subplot. And I'm someone who's very, very interested in the political side of the Tintin story. So to completely get rid of that side of it, uh, maybe maybe not remember it uh, quite as fondly. And I don't think that's necessarily fair. I think even though I wouldn't call it one of the all-time best Tintin albums, there are no bad Tintin albums post Blue Lotus, I think. So I think even one like Broken Ear has a lot to offer you. It was because of, you know, researching that I found out about the uh, the real-life Grand Chaco War between Paraguay and Bolivia, something I'd never heard of uh, in the past, and that's a war that killed 100,000 people. So I know I know a little bit about that now because of researching this, this story. And just in terms of the story, there's a lot of humour to be had in it as well. There's a lot of scenes I didn't get into the review that are just really, like, fun to, to read through. Scenes of multiple assassination attempts on Tintin always going wrong, and there's a big exchange at the start that involves a, a parrot that I'm sure everyone remembers, and that's a lot of fun. And having the Aaron Byers speak uh, Cockney, and trying to sort of work out what they're saying is a lot of fun. So I definitely wouldn't put it in my top five, but uh, there's still a lot to be gained. Definitely not a bad Tintin story. A big, big thank you to everybody who took the time to write in and let me know their thoughts on the broken ear. And I would encourage everyone listening to uh, to get in touch with the, the page on our Instagram at tintin.podcast. That's tintin.podcast on Instagram. Uh, I would also encourage you to check out the website at latterichard.com slash tintin. L-A-T-T-E-R-A-T-U-R-E dot com slash tintin um, for lots of sort of longer things that maybe can't be included on the Instagram page. Just some uh, housekeeping, some technical notes before we finish up. Yes, the name of the show going forward is Radio Tintin. It's no longer Gatsy Talks Tintin. I got my name out of there because we're not talking about me. We're talking about Tintin. So it's Radio Tintin. I understand that some podcast apps still have the old podcast artwork with my little cartoon face on it. And like the old name on it. I don't know why that is. Some apps do that. Some apps don't. But it still should come up as as Radio Tintin. So you shouldn't need to resubscribe. Also, if you ever get a new episode under the app and you can't open it or you can't play, that's because some apps, again, they take blog posts from the website and they think they're podcast episodes, but they're not. So they won't have anything on them. You're not missing out on any episodes. That's just... Some apps do that, some don't. I'm still trying to understand why some do and some don't. So don't worry, you're not missing out on any good, good Tintin content. Anyway, it is fantastic to be back doing actual reviews after a very relaxing Christmas holiday. And I hope you had a very relaxing Christmas holiday as well. And then on the Instagram page, we had a hashtag Haddockversary celebrating 80 years of Captain Haddock and going through some of his best moments. But we are back to just doing standard good old 
Tintin reviews, exploring not only the books, but you'll see I've got some very special episodes planned. There'll be no strict schedule in terms of uploads, but rest assured, if I'm not uploading something, I am reading and researching and writing something, along with some other projects I have going as well. So I hope you have enjoyed this episode, and I hope you are very excited for our next review. And I know I am because it is of one of my all-time favorite Tintin albums. We're going to be looking at Tintin and the Black Island. But until then, Tintin heads, great snakes. This has been Radio Tintin, and thank you for tuning in.